Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, before I dive into this message this morning, I want to mention something that we actually have coming up this Thursday, as in literally just a couple days from now. Uh, It's going to be our next worship night. We do these uh, quarterly. In fact, we actually do a couple of them in the summer, and uh, this upcoming one actually happens to be in my backyard. That's right. You can come hang out at my place. Nice central location for both campuses. Uh, And I just want to challenge all of you, in fact, invite all of you. Uh, These aren't typically, if I'm just being honest, like our highest attended events, and that's not why we do them. Uh, But for those of you who maybe look at a worship night and you're just like, that's, that's not my thing. I, I just want to invite you to take a step closer to God. As James, who's actually the brother of Jesus, reminds us, as we move closer to God, God will always move closer to us. And one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith is that so often we take a step physically, uh, our hearts typically follow suit. And so even though you might look at a worship night and you're like, again, that's just, just not my thing, worship in the service, not necessarily my favorite part of the service, uh, I want to invite you to take a step closer to God, take a step uh, closer physically, and I think your heart will follow again. Upcoming worship night here this Thursday, go to grumlaw.com slash discover and find all those details. And I think you might be surprised uh, how God shows up and shows off in your life. Now today, as we continue in this series, God of Miracles, uh, I want to ask you, how many of you are familiar with this term, auto stereogram? Uh, Auto stereogram. Any of you? Uh, These are those images that appear on the surface to be like these hyper pixelated pictures. And apparently, so I'm told, if you stare at them long enough, an image just kind of appears like magic. Uh, We've heard of these before, some of you maybe? Okay, here's one right now. All of you stare deep into this and tell me what you see. I'll give you a couple seconds. Now, now full disclosure, um, I never, ever, 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 have been able to find the image in these auto stereograms ever. In fact, I was that kid in grade school that when they would put these images up, uh, I would just pretend like I started to see the image so I, I could be included as other kids like kind of whisper. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I see, I see what's going on in there. Oh yeah. And then, and then I'd actually make fun of the kids that couldn't see it who were just being honest. Uh, anyone see this one? That's right. If, if you are seeing it, it is an airplane. But, but anyone else like me maybe feel like we're just getting duped? All right, a couple of you, that's great. Uh, Now today, uh, we're gonna be taking a look at what is surely one of the oddest miracles documented in scripture, documented in this book that we call the Bible, uh, that takes a similar stare and see approach. But, But it doesn't involve an airplane that's apparently hidden in this image. Rather, it involves a bronze snake. We'll talk about that more here in just a minute. Uh, Last week, again, as mentioned, we started a brand new series titled God of Miracles, where as mentioned, over the course of the month of July, we're going to be taking a look at just a handful of the miracles documented in in Scripture. Uh, It's also probably worth about pointing out at this point, and some of you might have picked up on this last week, I apparently can't pronounce miracle. I think it said miracle. I say miracle, and here's my justification for that or my working theory. It's because I live in America. So I say miracle, and that's all you're going to be able to hear now for the rest of the sermon. I am so sorry. But uh, anyway, our working definition of miracle, (laughs) miracle goes something like this. It is an event that involves the direct and powerful action of God transcending the ordinary laws of nature and defying common expectations of behavior. 
Now, a couple of observations regarding miracles and why this series should matter to all of us. Number one, God still performs miracles. The the, the miraculous wasn't reserved for a particular time in history for a certain group of people. The, The miraculous still occurs regularly today, even here in 21st century America. That though I will certainly grant you, it doesn't appear to be as frequent as other places in the world, most notably third world countries where maybe there's a greater desperation. Now, lots of reasons why we could get into as to why that may be the case, but that's again, another topic for another day. Uh, In fact, it was just late last year in 2021 that John, actually our worship pastor at our Grand Blank campus, uh, he, he was being like paralyzed at times by intense, intense back pain. They were trying to figure out if it was a slip disc, if it was a pinch on a nerve. But uh, regardless, he, he would be left literally bedridden for like weeks at a time, literally unable to move. Just going to the bathroom was like proving to be like a painful endeavor. And, and as he was kind of laboring over this and wondering like why, like in his mid-20s, like he, he's struggling in such like a profound physical way, uh, him and his wife were laying in bed together and she just looked at him and just asked him a question like, John, do, do you believe that God can heal you? And he said with a tenderness, with tears starting to run down his cheeks, he's like, yeah, I, I, I do believe that. And she's like, then why aren't we praying for the miraculous? And there they laid in their bed and and they begged the God of the universe to heal him. And literally in an instant, his back was made well. God still performs the miraculous. He he is still very much interceding in this manner. And, And then number two, God employs miracles to reveal himself, his character and his purposes to us, to, to human beings, his, his image bearers. I want to make this very clear. Miracles are for us, not for him. He he doesn't need to remind himself of his power, of his authority. These are very much for for us. In in this way, miracles are used to remind us that that we are the creation and he is the creator. Miracles are a demonstration of God's kindness to us. One of the many tools that God uses to strengthen our faith and guide us back towards him. So by looking at some of the miracles documented in this book that we call the Bible, which is similar to miracles, actually a gift for us. Again, God didn't write this stuff down because he was worried that someday he'd forget. This stuff was documented for us because he knew that we would forget. This gift, this this, this book called the Bible, Scripture reminds us of who God is and tells the story of a father desperately pursuing a relationship with his kids, his most prized possession. And we think that by examining some of these miracles, we can learn more about God, his character, his purposes, and the great lengths that he will go to in order to grab the attention of his most prized creation, you. Now, if you weren't here with us last week, uh, as we kicked off this series, I would highly, highly encourage you to get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com slash messages. Uh, or you can find us, as always, under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab those podcasts. But as I alluded to near the top, uh, today we're going to be taking a look at a miracle that I can almost guarantee you, uh, no matter how long you've been doing this church thing, no longer how long you've been attending Grumlaw or any other church for that matter, uh, I would almost guarantee you that you have never heard this spoken about in church. Uh, For most of you, I'll actually say, you've likely never even read about this particular miracle because it's buried so far in the book of Numbers, which is a book that happens to fall in the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible. Uh, And if I'm being honest, uh, Numbers isn't exactly a go-to book amongst Christians. Uh, And honestly, this miracle is probably avoided because it just seems weird. It just seems confusing, as we'll see this morning on, on the surface anyway. 
And I'm going to come actually clean with all of you right now. Here's a point of confession for your pastor. I'd love to tell you (laughs) that I selected this particular miracle because God came to me in a vision and he's like, Shay, this is the message you need to preach on July the 10th. That, that unfortunately, I'm just telling you, that, that's not how this went. In fact, I, I legitimately selected this miracle to speak on today because of its bizarre nature and because, frankly, I just like a challenge. I, I had never heard it preached on either, and so my own curiosity just kind of got the best of me. And today I'm here to reveal to all of you what I found, what I discovered as I studied for this. Fair, fair enough. And, and spoiler alert, it's some really good stuff. And the parallels to be drawn with Jesus himself, frankly, blew my mind as I was researching, studying, uh, and sat down to write this message. Now, a little bit of context before we dive here into the book of Numbers uh, will help uh, kind of bring this story to life in in some new ways. The Israelites, uh, for hundreds of years, were were living as slaves under the hands of the Egyptians. And and God, at at one point, against all the odds, he he delivers them out from underneath the hand of their oppressors. Uh, It's the story that's documented in Exodus where against all the odds, you know, God parts the Red Sea and he delivers his people finally from being slaves to the Egyptians. And since that triumphant rescue, loads of miracles buried in there, by the way, uh, things were not going particularly well. Uh, Most notably, uh, the Israelites were forced to wander around in the wilderness, in the desert for a 40-year period because of their lack of faith. Specifically, God was saying, hey, this is the land that I have given to you. It it is inhabited by some other people, but don't worry, you'll defeat them. And the Israelites are looking at these other armies going, it just doesn't seem possible. Like their army seems to be way more powerful than ours and, and they wouldn't take the land. And God's like, don't you remember when I just did all that miraculous stuff around you? Don't you realize who goes before you and as punishment? He's like, hey, your lack of faith, you're gonna wander around the desert for 40 years. And, and while they are wandering around in said wilderness, it, it would seem <laughs> that the Israelites' most notable spiritual gift was complaining. Not only against each other and their leaders, but also to God himself, which as an aside seems pretty reckless considering what they have witnessed over the last couple of years. The power of God has been on audacious display. So so with that as the backdrop, we dive into our miracle commonly referred to as the bronze snake. And you're going to find out why it's called that momentarily. So we pick up here in Numbers chapter 21. Again, if you want to follow along yourself, you just peel back all the way to the beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book there uh, in the Bible. There it reads for us. The people, referring to the Israelites, grew impatient with the long journey. So so they again, wandered around the desert for 40 years. And, And they began to speak against God and Moses. And here's their complaint. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complain. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Now, now a couple things worth noting here. Uh, You are interpreting and and hearing this correctly. And, And in fact, this actually appears as a regular theme in the documentation of the Israelites' journey, that they are actually longing for the days when they were slaves. They they are so emotional and so caught up in this particular moment that they're actually wishing and longing for the day when they were slaves under the Egyptians. Like I said, complaining has become a real gift for these people. That that spiteful friend that you got on Facebook that's always popping off, they don't have nothing on the Israelites. Furthermore, they're specifically complaining right here about manna. Let me explain to you real quick how absurd this is. (laughs) Manna was the miracle. That they're wandering around in the wilderness and they don't have anything to eat. And God literally starts dropping food, manna, think like a, a nice croissant, like a sweet piece of bread from the sky 
every single day, they wake up, there's just manna on the ground that God has quite literally delivered. And now they're going, we don't want it. We don't like it. We are very sick of manna. It was a couple of weeks ago, I was coming home a little bit later in the day with, with my two kids, my, uh, my older two, Logan and Malachi. And, uh, and I needed to feed them before I got home because it was just later in the day. And I decided, you know what? I'm gonna treat my kids. I'm gonna go and get them happy meals. And you gotta understand in the Priscombe, that, that is a rarity. That's like a twice a year type affair. Uh, usually if we're going to fast food, it is dollar menu or bus. But I was feeling generous and I said, you know what? I love my kids. I'm gonna get them happy meals. Now, now, I want you to keep in mind, this is a little aside here. Uh, earlier in the day, I, I had mentioned apparently at some point that maybe we would get pizza that night. But everybody knows, and like the laws of children, happy meals trump pizza 100% of the time. But you get pizza more than you get happy meals. And so I, I'm in the drive-thru and they haven't really quite figured out what's going on yet. I order their happy meals. And before I can get to the counter or to the window where, where I'm gonna pay the woman, uh, they start realizing, wait, we're not getting pizza. And my daughter looks at me and she goes, dad, you said we were gonna get pizza today. And I'm like, wait, Logan, you don't understand. I'm getting you happy meals now. She's like, well, you said pizza. And then there's this meltdown happening in my back seat. And I'm looking back at my kids like, what a bunch of spoiled, entitled brats. And come on, this is especially true if you grew up in the church. Isn't it tempting to look at the Israelites wandering in the wilderness with some pretty judgmental eyes. I mean, seriously, what is wrong with these people? How could they be so nearsighted? How are they so consistently quick to forget what God has done for them in the past? That is until we take an honest look at ourselves and we realize that the Israelite story happens to collide with every single one of our stories grumbling, complaining, very quick to jump to the negative, even quicker to forget God's faithfulness in the past, spoiled, entitled brats. Andrea and I have been pretty open, uh, my wife and I, in, in sharing about our journey with our third child, uh, who are hoping to very, very soon adopt through the foster care system. And for those of you that have been tracking with our story, uh, over the last couple of months, we've just received like a lot of really, really great news and a lot of just stuff just on glaring display that like, oh my gosh, has shown time and time again that God, your plan is so much better than ours. And all indications it's on this track are that, you know, eventually we are going to be able to adopt Oakley as, as, as our child legally that all be, you know, buttoned up. But over the last couple of weeks, and some of you have pieced this together through Instagram stories and social media, uh, there have been a couple, let's just say setbacks or, or things where we're kind of scratching our heads wondering like, okay, but now it kind of seems like it's going back in the opposite direction. And I got to tell you, I'm just being vulnerable with all of you. In, in those moments, my wife and I, at least for a moment, we're going like, oh God, where are you? It's like this woe is me card playing all over again. And again, I just have to picture God going like, are you serious? Have you already forgotten literally what I did just like two months ago when, when the sweetest words, literally the greatest news that Shay and Andrea, you have ever heard in your life were finally delivered to you on a silver platter? Take it easy. I got this under control. God is so kind. He is so patient with every one of us. But, but as we're about to see, God will sometimes take drastic action to grab the attention of his kids. And, and I want all of you to keep in mind as we read this, what we are about to read is going to sound harsh. I, I will actually say even cruel to most of you on the other side of the screen. 
But it is precisely the most loving thing God could have done for the Israelites in this particular moment. As the writer in Proverbs, which is another book that we find in the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible, which is really just a collection of wisdom for everyday living that all of us would be wise to actually live by. The writer there tells us, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. That those who love their children care enough to discipline them. Which admittedly, this language on the surface, I mean, hate their children, that, that sounds a little bit extreme. That, that is until you have children of your own. And, and you realize that discipline is precisely one of the most loving things that a parent has to offer to their children. Th these three little chirps right here, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Whenever I use them as an example, I look at those pictures, I look at their faces, I almost start bawling my eyes out. Because I love these three, Logan, Malachi, and Oakley, so much. Certainly more than I love myself. And I'm telling you, it is precisely because of that love that I discipline them. Conversely, you want to know who I don't discipline? <laughs> Your kids. The neighborhood kids. The kids that my kids go to school with. Why not? Because they're not my kids. I love your kids. I care about the kids that live on our street, but, but it is certainly not the same love that I have for these three children. Hebrews reminds us no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But, but afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. It is painful, not only for, for the people who are on the receiving end of the discipline, but, but oftentimes, let's be honest, but, but for you, the person who's administering said discipline. But, but the writer here is explaining something that every single one of us actually know to be true. The, the, the discipline isn't merely just a good idea, a, a good thought exercise. It is necessary. It is vital for right living. Practically speaking, when we think about our kids, it's how we train our children towards that which will ultimately be best for them and away from that which will ultimately cause them harm. My son Malachi, the blonde-haired boy, he got in trouble recently for wandering down to the lake, which is across the street from us, but by himself. And I got onto him. Like, I really, like, we had a stern conversation. Why would I have that conversation with my son? Is it because I'm a grumpy curmudgeon who is anti-water and just hates lakes? Now, those of you who follow me on social media, you know that is far from the case. I, I love the water. It's because my son Malachi isn't much of a swimmer. And, and I don't want my kid falling off a dock because he's pretty klutzy, if I'm honest, and, and I don't want him drowning. You, you want to know why I, I will discipline my son Malachi later on in life if he was to objectify women or treat his sexuality loosely, maybe looking at pornography, staring a little bit too long at the woman on the beach? I know the answer to that, Shay. It's because sex is bad. I'm pretty sure that's written down somewhere in the Bible. Nope. I'm here to proclaim to all of you, sex is great. I am pro-sex in the context of marriage. And what happens, and again, so many of us have experienced this, when you treat your sexuality loosely out of marriage, it has very negative consequences for your marriage, future or present. Discipline 
It is a necessary tool to train our bodies towards that which will ultimately lead to joy, peace, contentment, and away from that which will ultimately cause us harm, regret, and shame. So there the Israelites go, as they so often would, complaining up a storm. And here is what happens next. So the Lord (laughs) sent poisonous snakes among the people, the Israelites, his chosen people, and many were bitten and died. Now, now in our you-do-you, live-and-let-love society, accounts like these, they don't really sit well with us. I mean, like, seriously, like, did we just read that right? God let loose venomous snakes among his own people, actually killing some of the people along the way? It is exceedingly difficult for us to get our heads around the fact that our supposedly all-loving God would allow something like this to happen, much less actually be the force apparently that set it in motion. Now, now it's worth pointing out that this is a somewhat modern dilemma for human beings. And it's really only a hiccup for those living in first world countries like America where comfort is king. Until somewhat recently, the, the turn of the century, People had long understood, I know this is a crazy idea, that consequences have actions. That that if you, for instance, continue to defy the living God, and honestly, you you don't even need to be a Christian to get your head around this. Let's just say for your sake, let's just say if there is a God out there, if there's a God out there and you continue to stand in defiance to him, that probably won't go particularly well for you. That there are gonna be consequences for those actions. I mean, after all, he's God. You are the creation, he is the creator. As was posed in another book that we find in the Old Testament called Job, where honestly, this this character, if you read about his life, he he had plenty reason to complain. But even in the midst of those complaints and questioning God, God looks at him and he says, hey, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who do you think you are? Who, Who are we mere mortals to question God? Now, now, this doesn't seem just or fair in our comfort overall society until we remember that God is actually the author of justice. He, he alone determines what is fair, what is just. And if you decide to throw out God, you, you are actually throwing out the very premise and the centering point by where we draw our justice from. God certainly doesn't owe us any explanations. And even if he did explain it to us, we are assuming we'd be able to comprehend what he's offering. Church, a significant moment in every one of our faith journeys, bring this, bring this in, this is so important. Huge moment in all of our faith journeys comes about when we realize that part of what makes God well, God is his superiority, his wisdom, his justice, his holiness, his otherworldliness. Someone posed to me so many years ago and I was similarly grappling with a passage of scripture that I just couldn't reconcile. He looked at me and he said, Shay, if you could completely get your head around God in his ways, would he be worthy of your adoration, your attention, your praise? Come on, isn't it precisely that otherworldliness that keeps us coming back for more? That causes us to return to his feet over and over and over again? I mean, if we could completely understand God, 
then he wouldn't be all that much different than you or I. Certainly not worthy of our praise and definitely not worthy of dedicating our lives to. And listen, if you're watching right now and all of that, everything that I was just offering, it means very little to you. Perhaps even elicits an eye roll or two. And it's passages precisely like this that have caused you to turn your back to God because you simply cannot reconcile worshiping or giving your attention to a God who would do something like that. I'm just going to ask you to give me your attention for like another two minutes. Remember, the same God that unleashed venomous snakes on his chosen people, and keep in mind, in response to their rebellion, is the same God who would later offer his son for your sin. Remember, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that the same snake-releasing God is the same God who would later get off of his throne and give his life for, for you. Significant. That, that is important as we try to wrap our heads around ideas like fairness and goodness and as we try to consider what is just. I mean, think about this. What else might not be off limits if he, God, did not spare his own son? That's a profound question. What else might not be off limits in your life if God didn't spare his own son? Your health, your wealth, your family, your ego, your pride, your career? And I want you to misinterpret this. Don't, don't hear me wrong on this. This isn't a threat. It's a reminder. What might God allow to happen in your life or even directly set into motion to grab your attention? The attention of his most prized possession. Remember where we started this conversation. This is a kindness. Precisely the most loving thing that he could do for you, for me, for us. Protecting us from that which will ultimately be our undoing and leading us towards that which will give us life, peace, joy, freedom. His discipline is a demonstration of his love. This is important because a lot of places get this twisted, not to pay us back, but, but to win us back, to win you back. It, it's not a punishment cleverly disguised as discipline. It is a desire to restore bathed in discipline. It's not twisted justice. It is a relentless love. And the minute that you start to doubt that, remember that same love would eventually get off his throne, dwell amongst us, and give his life for you. His discipline is in fact an invitation into true life, true freedom, true contentment, something that every single one of us are chasing after what life on this earth was meant to be like before sin started wreaking havoc on ourselves and others. Child of God, no matter how difficult this season may feel, no matter how painful the affliction, that the God of the universe longs to use even that to draw you closer to him. Our story is not quite done that then the people came to Moses and they cried out. This is important. We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. 
Very important what's being articulated here. That they no longer tried to hide or coddle their sin. As we talked about several weeks ago, they confessed, they pulled it into the light and they repented. That they responded to the discipline, not by running even further from God, but by doubling down on their rebellion, as we so often do, as is so often the case, quite literally the tale of high school Shay. No, they turned and confessed their rebellion. They confessed their sin, and then they waited at the feet of God for his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace. And in what would become a familiar pattern for the Israelites, their leader, Moses, he prays on their behalf. And since God responds and is moved by the prayers of the righteous, God chooses to answer the prayer, sort of. (laughs) Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and he attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. I got to tell you, I really admire the obedience of Moses. Because, can we just be honest for a minute? This has to be about the strangest request of all time. Right? Like you'd be looking back at God going, you, I'm trying to get my head around this. You want me to, to make a replica of one of these snakes that, that are going around biting everyone? And, and then you want me to, to fix it to a pole? And then if the people look at it, they're going to be healed? And God's like, exactly. And what's absolutely fascinating to me, Moses actually does it. And apparently it works. That's the miracle, by the way. Stare at a bronze snake and you're healed. A sort of anti-venom. But I can't be the only one. Anybody else out there wondering what immediately came into my head the first time that I read this rather bizarre Old Testament account? I mean, come on. What's the question begging to be asked right here? The the same question that biblical scholars and Bible teachers have been asking for generations. Why didn't God just get rid of the snakes? Right? I mean, this would be like, for instance, let's just say, uh, your, your kitchen, right? Your, your, your sink in your kitchen, uh, the faucet, it, it begins to malfunction for, for whatever reason. And no matter how far you turn it to the left, it's just cold water straight out of the ground, no matter what. Like you, you can't get any hot water whatsoever. And, and you, rather than you know, hiring somebody or trying to fix it yourself, replacing the faucet, figuring out what's going on in the piping, you just decide, you know what? You hire a contractor and that contractor comes in and they add a second sink, you know, invading your counter space. And then they add in a second faucet and that second faucet only pumps out hot water no matter how much you pump it to the right. So you got your cold water sink and you got your hot water sink, two massive sinks in the middle of your kitchen. And as your friends and your family start coming over to your house and notice that you've done like a little renovation project, they start inevitably asking the question, well, why didn't, why didn't you just replace the first faucet? Why add the second sink? God, God, it just seems like you've taken a somewhat convoluted approach to this. I mean, you brought those snakes into our lives, so why don't you now take them out of our lives? But, but apparently, 
Well, what was going on is the snakes were still very much a part of the Israelites' lives. They're still going around biting people with the same level of frequency, that they are all still facing their inevitable death if they get bit by the snake, unless, unless they go stare at a bronze snake on a pole, at which point you'll get healed. Now, here's the parallel that biblical scholars have been drawing on for centuries from this account. And admittedly, this got me so giddy when I put this together, like nerdy pastor moment coming out here for sure. Just as the Israelites had to stare at the very source of their affliction for their healing to remind themselves of who and what caused this to begin with, so it is with Jesus. As we so often say around here, until you see yourself as a sinner, you won't see a need for a savior. Until you stare at and come to grips with your sin, that you almost exclusively make decisions that lead to regret, shame, and ultimately death, you won't see a need for a savior to rescue you. And in our all-accepting, our all-embracing culture, good grief do we ever resist this. But church, central to following Jesus is turning and repenting of your sin. And you certainly can't repent of that which you don't even see as wrong. And yes, the Israelites were forced to look at their source of affliction to remind them of their sin that that put them in that position to begin with. But more importantly, it reminded them and called them back to their creator, whom is the author of life. And in order for you, you watching right now to be declared righteous, in order for you to get that right standing back with God that was fractured upon us sinning, upon us rebelling, you too must stare at the cross. Bloody, tortured, took the weight of my sin on his shoulders, Jesus, to remind yourself that it is your sin that put him there. It is my sin that put him there. And the only way that we are saved is by placing our trust in Jesus. Repenting and turning away from our worldly, our flesh-driven way of living and submitting our lives to Him. We must stare at the cross as uncomfortable as it may be at times to remind ourselves that left to our own devices, we will inevitably spell our own undoing. Our sin put Him on that cross. And it is only because of what Jesus did for each of us that we may experience true life, eternal life, but the life that in fact your creator has waiting for you.